From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome to this edition of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. Chase Parm, Brian Rippey here with you today. It is uh, Sunday afternoon as we're recording, sometime around uh, 1.45. Harry Higgs, who buttons one button of his polo, is uh, or maybe none, actually. He is currently uh, waving his hand around on my screen, watching the final round of the Waste Management Open. But we're going to talk some baseball today. Mike Bianco starting his 22nd season as head coach. Rebels open up Friday, Charleston Southern. Um, I don't even know what time the first game is. Looking at it here, uh, let's see, four o'clock for the season opener on Friday. So we're going to talk. Uh, going to talk team. Going to talk schedule. Going to talk the uh, the storyline around the program a little today as well. So a bit of an Oxford Oxford Exxon baseball preview here for you with uh, with Brian and myself uh, coming up as game week is upon us. The podcast brought to you every single day by the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford. You know, we're still trying to give you $10. You can do that by just uh, going to the pump, taking a picture of the QR code. QR code It pulls up the Exxon mobile app, and it's automatically 1,000 points, $10 there with the Oxford Exxon lunch specials, 569, two sides, bread, 32-ounce drink, and more. And I am not in the Clark Ford studio, but we do most of our shows from the Clark Ford studio. Clark Ford. Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. That's on Highway 25 South there in Amory. Corey wants to be your truck guy, wants to be your car guy. Let him help you out. He'll take care of you. You get customer service that is excellent, not just before you buy, but after you buy as well. And then all guests join us on the Raptors Music and Food Hotline, Raptors on the Square in Oxford and New Albany. Yeah, out uh, Raptors on the water once the summer and once things heat up. So, a lot of different options to take care of uh, great po' boys, drink selections, and more there with uh, Rafters. Brian, we were just talking about it. I, I guess we're both getting old. Neither one doing much of a Super Bowl party or anything. If anything, instead of the big party, I just want to be left alone. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that comes with age, which is weird to say at 26 turning 27 next month. But I've always been sort of like anti-huge crowd to watch a game. Um like, if it's something I'm not necessarily invested in or have to watch, like going to a bar to watch a game, whatever, fine. But I would prefer just to be in the comfort of my own home with volume. I'm a big volume guy. If I can, like, if I can't listen to the broadcast, odds are, like, I'm not going to get a great idea of what's going on in the game in terms of locking in. So, three, four people, some food is about all I need. So, you're anti-game in a bar, too, then? Well, so sometimes for like bigger games, I remember particularly when I was in college, if you found a non-crowded bar, like when the national title game was on a Monday night for college, like rafters stay on brand would put the volume up. And so it'd be relatively quiet, be going on the projections, like not the ideal setup, but being able to hear it over the rafters loudspeaker was nice. But then in some occasions you would get a DJ who would get a lo- little over ambitious. He'd have the whatever the circles thing he turned set up at halftime and start cranking out some tunes, and then that's when I was out of there. So they'd go DJ over volume. That's when I tapped out. I, I will say there are bars and towns that are really good at, hey, this is a game everybody's watching, just turn the volume on. Yes. And you can that read is. the room and know what's coming. Like, it's like I, I, I know that's been – I know, like, Lee at Funky's, that's a big thing. Like, hey, it's an NFL divisional round playoff. We know we want volume. Just go ahead, put it on. If they don't like it, they can deal with it. It is what it is. So – 
you know. Uh, all right, so we're here to talk baseball. Starts up Friday, Charleston Southern, Ole Miss. I think as I speak right now, they're doing their last intra-squad prior to uh, the, the season starting, a season where all the offense is back, a lot of pitching questions as far as who fills what roles and how they push those buttons. And then uh, as is the, uh, the annual occurrence with Ole Miss, it's the storylines around the program with Mike and always good. Only been Omaha once during his uh, during his tenure. I'll say this: we talked about this a little bit last year too. You've been, I say, you're talking on the sports podcast. You're not out of it. You'll be back into it more full time in the future. But um, being away from the program, but following it as a spectator from where you are, what is kind of the difference? How do you see that your perspective changes? Like, what are the things that may be good and bad that you feel like you pick up on versus? being completely inundated every day like I've been for a long time? Um, I would say it's a different perspective watching games on television. Uh, like, particularly, they put us out there in left field, right? And it's hard to see kind of what a pitcher's doing throughout the course of a game because you just don't have a great angle in terms of, like, where they're missing and what it actually looks like. So that's a big thing. And honestly – with it hasn't been a big a huge difference because I know you guys for the last year and a half hadn't been able to do a ton of stuff in person so everything is on zoom but I would say outside of that honestly just being detached from it and like watching it one not having to talk to Mike every day is pretty sweet but out (laughs) outside of that I would just say it's you get a different perspective almost like watching the team, but not necessarily listening to some of the canned answers and things they give afterwards. It's like you can learn less and more at the same time, if that makes any sense. Like you you notice more general trends. I feel like watching it on television and being like kind of one step removed as opposed to getting bogged down in the day-to-day stuff. And I think it also helps not having to have the responsibility of like asking Mike or whoever who's pitching this game and filling notebooks and stuff like that. You can focus on more big picture stuff, I guess would be the main thing. You know, this is such a strange season, and I, I, I don't want to stay focused on the, the, the story around Mike the whole time because they're going to play a season, and whatever happens is going to happen regardless of that. But what is fascinating by it is I always am kind of wondering, and this is sort of a topic for fans or anybody else, what is the nature and the opinion of the diehard fan who's on the Internet, who's on social media, versus the rest of them? Because it, it's bizarre world in a way with college baseball and Ole Miss specifically. Because you've got a coach here who has won a lot of games over the course of his his tenure. He's been to the postseason all but maybe three times. I'm mean, having done the math in my head quickly, but something like that. And they've been to the Sweet 16 numerous times, if you want to take put it into basketball parlance. However, at this moment, I think they're one in nine in games to reach the College World Series during his tenure. I believe that's the number. Um, there is some frustration over the the overall product and how it's gone in June. However, they're ranked number five in the country. They have tons of guys back. They do it in a sport that is not equitable up and down the board from a resources standpoint. And they just sold about 8,300 season tickets, which is an all-time record. And it means people are going to the games and they're showing up. So it, from a media health of program standpoint, it's the weirdest thing in the world because the, the things you look for in a coach's um, – you know, his, his approval poll, if you will, are, are fans going to the games? Um, is he winning? Is he doing all these different things? And it, it, it's why I've talked to multiple people. I mean, you know, Keith Carter's talked about how if he brought in a group of people and said that are all Mike supporters and said, hey, give me your pitch. 
And they'd get done with a meeting and he'd go, oh, my God, we need to build the man a statue and hire him forever. And then immediately after that, you brought in everybody who was negative about Mike and said, give me your pitch. You go, oh, my God, how is he the coach for what? how many periods of years? It's such the drastic whatever. But I wonder, are there tons of people in the middle that we don't necessarily hear of? And then it's just got this extreme people on the outside. And that's what we kind of deal with. And look, I love all you guys. I mean, you're the reason we have a job. Or kind of where does that situation stand? And then, two, with this LSU thing, you just never see this much. He ends up interviewing for the LSU job back in the summer, staying at Ole Miss, um, mostly kind of playing it off as, hey, it was my alma mater. It's where Kami and I met. It's just a thing I had to look into. I owed them that. I owed myself that. But, you know, this is a program I built, and I'm here, and I, I love it here. It's not something you see. Where do you sort of land on all this? And where do you land on? Do you feel like the LSU thing has moved more people into the negative column? I mean, now that time has passed, how big of a deal do you feel like that actually was? There's a lot of layers to that because I'll start here. They just set another season ticket sales record, did they not? Yeah, 8,300-ish, something like that. That's what I thought. I thought it was a new record. I think they put that out last week. I think that's somewhat indicative of what you're talking about between the divide of the hardcore, been there since the beginning, up to date on everything. Mostly a lot of the people on our board, right? Like that's kind of that demographic. But I think there's a larger in-between faction, um, particularly I think with younger fans too, that don't, I don't want to say don't care, but maybe aren't privy to all the inner workings of this entire 22 year story and under like, and probably aren't as frustrated because of it. And I guess the best way to articulate that and like what I mean by that is, I remember after the 2018 debacle, the Black Monday, heading into 2019, we had a, what was largely a similar conversation, um, probably a little bit more dramatic to where it's how is like is anyone going to care during the regular season? Literally this entire season comes down to June, blah, 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 blah. And that one was a little different because if you remember, that team felt that way too. They were just kind of in a funk for you know, a month and a half of the season, sometimes longer. It seemed like they would come in and out of it. It was a very weird vibe where – Last year, and even the 2020 season before it got canceled, was a little bit different because, one, there were new players. But, two, that guy in the middle, I think Mike has benefited from – I tried to coin the name Mr. February, and that never got really taken off. I'm sure he would love that if he ever got back to him. But I think some of the fast starts that he's had, they're always good at the beginning of the year. And I think you know, right here in my backyard now, the way they started in Texas last year and the manner in which they won those games and really dominated a couple of them, like that fast start, I think gets the guy in the middle pulled back in again. I don't think the guy in the middle when Ole Miss went three and zero against Texas, Texas Tech, and TCU remembers 05 and 06, if that makes sense. And they're on board again. And I was honestly the first month of last season surprised. Like judging based off like friends and people I keep in touch with, I would say most of them are in the middle or lean on the casual side are texting me wondering about Derek Diamond or where the Gonzalez kid came from, and we're really bought in. And so I think there's a lot of a lot of that. I think there's probably that diehard group is maybe a little bit smaller than people maybe want to admit that it is. And I think the kind of casual, it's a fun to follow a baseball team. It's a social event type thing. That faction is probably larger because if everyone felt the way that, you know, the guys locked in every day did, would they still be setting season ticket records? Maybe that's the case. Maybe the people that are still anti-Mike still want to go to the games and spend money. But the fact that you haven't seen any sort of dent in people going to games and attendance and all of that makes me think that the casual fan and all of that is a much 
larger faction that we're giving credit for. You also got to factor in this. There's probably people that have been Ole Miss baseball fans 2014 since or when they got to school in 2015 or whatever that don't remember the first 11 years or somewhere in there, draw whatever divider you want. And when you come in post 05, 06 or post 09 or whenever it may be, the frustration is probably not the same, even though you may have heard about it. If you didn't kind of follow that, I doubt you're as, you know, ready to, you know, kick the guy out the door. And the last thing I'll say regarding that, as far as the casual group, how many people actually know the inner workings of him going to a hotel room in Birmingham to meet with LSU? How large a number of people in terms of the fan base do you think that actually is? Oh, I bet it's a low, I bet it's a smaller number than you think. I mean, obviously most people on our board mentioned it, most people on the own three board mentioned it, like that kind of thing. But for the most part, no, I don't think you're just normal guy that goes, yeah, I'm going to see 10, 15 games a year. Like he might know he was a candidate. He might know some things, but I don't know how, how deep that goes. And it's hard to – and, again, I, mean, I promise we're going to move on a little bit. But it, I think it sets up this season in a lot of ways. I, I do think this, this is relevant in a couple different ways because I don't know really what I think. And I know that's probably bad from a person who's around it every day. But I can make kind of all the arguments, and I, I can I can spin my own head around exactly what I think about his tenure because there's two things that are true. And this is, this is harmful and helpful to Mike. Mike is very insular. He does not – do a lot of stuff around. I mean, he, he's, he's very community-oriented, but as far as hearing the chatter, he doesn't hear a lot of chatter around town. He's pretty isolated from that standpoint. You remember to the, the point, day he told all of us he didn't read any of us except for Davis Potter and then just looked at all of us and go, no offense? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think for the most part, he's, most coaches are full of crap. I believe Mike. I believe that too. Yeah, I completely believe him. I, well, I think it has to run across his radar. I think he's – don't you think he's read a little bit more the last year and a half? I believe that for about 20 years. Okay, yeah, I'll probably buy that. And he, but my reason in saying those things are, it helps him. Is in I don't think he lets any type of talk about these things from the internet affect his decision making. I don't think he knows it. I think Mike Bianco right now, if he had truth serum, would go. Hang on, people are upset. It's, it was a big deal that I interviewed with LSU, and I, and I'm being serious. And I'm really not even being negative here. I just mean I swear I think that's what he would believe. I don't think he would have any idea. And now, again, that's that's bad and good. There, there are both sides of seeing that. But I don't think you would. And then here's the other part of this, and I don't know the answer. And I've covered most of these teams. I don't know how much 05, 06, 07 is relevant to right now. Because, frankly, look, there's a pattern and a trend that is very relevant. I mean, one in nine to get to the College World Series in the SEC with a program that has these level of resources from a money standpoint and that type of thing. That is, a, that is a fireable offense if an AD wants to go down that road and use that as a fireable offense. Again, listen to what I say. If you want to do that, you can from that. Um, but the program's still making a lot of money. Reason to keep him. And then, two, Mike's a better coach today than he was 10 years ago. He's adapted to this – I don't want to say generation because it makes me sound like I'm 65 years old. But you can't coach the kids today the way he coached kids in 02, 03, 04 – where he was much harder on them. Um, there was a lot less positive reinforcement. He's adapted to the kids pretty well. They were in Super Regionals in 19 and 21. They were the number one team in the country or whatever they were in 20 when the season ended. You know, they had Black Monday in 18. It's just put Keith in a really weird spot where Mike can get tense. He can do different things. I think if he heard all this, it would affect him in a negative way. I think how insulated he is actually allows him to coach 
the way he wants to coach or without a lot of outside resources or, or, or factors affecting his management as the year goes on. Because, I mean, frankly, his management is what's going to dictate the season, barring injuries or something, because there's a lot of buttons to be pushed as we go through this thing from a pitching staff standpoint. It, it's just – it's set up an interesting dynamic where – I think you have a coach who, from an internet scuttlebutt standpoint, is very successful, but also somewhat on the hot seat. And I don't think he knows it. And he's got stands around him that are full with people excited and all these different accolades in this in the health of this program. It's making money. It's doing all these things. For a reporter, it's a weird freaking spot. And I, it is it is where you get into the season and go, holy crap, I don't know what I think come June and what happens with this thing. It is. And you're right in the sense that he's adapted as a coach, too, which is why we're talking about this requires so much nuance. And that's often, you know, when it, a lot of nuance is required, that's when often you get a lot of polarization as well. And it's he has adapted to the way he's coached those kids, you know, and they changed it. I don't think I'm allowed to use the word generational until I hit 30 at least. So I won't do that. But he has changed the way he's coached those guys. And you saw a transformation even in just his demeanor, too, in 19, where you know, they left Knoxville, Tennessee after – I think they finally won the last game, but they lost like six, seven in a row after getting swept by State. And they were in such a bad place during the SEC tournament or entering the SEC tournament. He just kind of threw his hands up and was like, to hell with it. Basically kind of went F it mode. Like, what, what is yelling at these kids going to do? I'm can't. I mean, told them to have fun. Yeah, hey, chill out. Play baseball. Yeah, because he was dead in the water. He was done at that point. And then you had Ross fall up or did the great job ever. That's a conversation for another day. But even on top of that – He's adapted in other ways too. Like, how many sack bunts did they have last year? Two, three. Yeah, it, it's it's the worst internet stereotype in the world. Is oh my god, Button Bianco. It's like dude doesn't bunt. He doesn't anymore. The what the Colin and I talked about this last Thursday. The one like hot water he ran into last year was not bunting when he had the tying run of, on second with no outs against LSU on Thursday or Friday, whenever that was last year. And people were mad he didn't bunt. It's like wait a minute, you can't have this both ways. But then. You know, in all serious note, like on some of the analytic stuff, it's that he hasn't graduated to shifting yet. So that may be that former receptionist turned analytics guy um, next project. But I think some of the analytic stuff has also popped up in their pitching and the way they've developed guys and had them add some second and third pitches as well. And that stuff you don't necessarily see. And they don't even really talk about it as much. But it's clear that from talking to people around the program and stuff like that, you know, just through time that that's developed as well. It so turned Taylor like, Broadway from a Juco prospect into an All-American. It's a great point. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And then on top of that, it's weird because you talk about this in the one and 22 and the lack of history. At the end of the day, they also lost to two better teams in the third game the last two years. Arkansas was better in 19 and Arizona was better in 21. And it just kind of is what it is from that standpoint. People don't want to hear that. But then the other aspect of this is if you have a healthy Gunnar Hoagland, and I know injuries are part of it, in a healthy Tim Elka, don't they probably go last year? I'm not saying they beat Arizona. They're probably not playing in Tucson last year if that doesn't happen. Yeah, Hoagland's health would have been at worst at least one or two more games, which, yeah, instead of the – what were they, the 11 or the 12 or the 13, and they're the 10 or the 11 or the 9 or whatever, sure. Yeah. And so it's, it's a lot to, like, process at once. But then he doesn't help himself out with the LSU thing. And that's where I think this year's different, I guess, to kind of bring the conversation to its, like, apex or whatever – the Mike Bianco hater or whatever that's just kind of blindly against him. This would be the first year from you talk about how to think about it as a reporter standpoint. It's like the first year I would fully be like, all right, man, I get it. Like some of your arguments in the past probably not been great, but now that that's happened, like that to me is what feels most different about this year that he was about to kind of 
you know, leave if the opportunity presented itself and handled it. You talk about PR 101, he would get an F in terms of the way that played out. So that to me is what's different about this year. We take a break on the show to tell you about Community Mortgage, Oxford, Memphis, Sutter County, and Chattanooga. They are an underwriting and processing done in Memphis. They're getting local underwriting and understand your market, a leader in condo financing, the float down option, and more. You can find Jason at 662-234-2704 or J-L-O-W-E at communitymtg.com. Podcast also brought to you by Northeast Spark. That's S-P-A-R-C, service people across rural communities. They got two packages, the Ignite, the 100 Mbps, or the Blaze, the one gig that powers the Clark Forge Studio. Your hometown team bringing you world-class broadband. That's nespark.com, 662-238-3159. Again, best internet in Fayette County. That's nespark.com. Podcast also brought to you by Prime Shrimp, primeshrimp.com. It is a New Orleans-based company getting shrimp right to your door. Because if you love eating shrimp, don't you really like choosing the right option at the store, cooking it at home? You're not alone. It's pretty easy. It's available right there um, in the uh, on the internet, primeshrimp.com. Again, take some pride in your shrimp. You eat New Orleans-based company. They get all the peeling and processing. They've been doing that for over 70 years. So they know how to do it right. You can shop them for a risk-free purchase, money-back guarantee, ship straight to your door. MPW, $20 off your forced order using that code. The signature seasoning seasoning's my favorite. They've got the French Quarter Alfredo as well. So try it out straight to door. Four pounds ships free as well. Again, that's primeshrimp.com. Also, um, podcast brought to you in part by GNM Pharmacy, 662-236-2222. They're on South Lamar and Oxford. They're on the square in Holly Springs with Tyson Drugs, and they deliver locally in the Oxford area. They also offer MedSync to fill your prescriptions the same day each month and take care of you. Again, that's 662-236-2222. Today is Valentine's Day. I hope you have a wonderful day. And if you're kind of a last-minute shopper, it's all good. We've still got you. That's Style Assembly on the Square in Oxford. That's 203 North Lamar. It's right next to Blind Pig. They offer clothes, shoes, purses, jewelry, sunglasses, art, and more. You can also get a gift card. That's the thing to do today. It is the last day. Make sure you're still taking care of Valentine's Day. All you have to do is mention the podcast, mention the website, call Kate, the owner of the store, 662-638-3163. You can pick it up, and it will. Uh, they'll add 10% to the gift card if you mention that. So mention the podcast. Again, at Style Assembly on the Square in Oxford, 662-638-3163. Podcast also brought to you by Johnston Hill Creamery. They are at 662-419-9201, White Oak Lane, right off Molly Bar in Oxford, and it's still king cake season. You can pre-order those all the way to March 1st. That's Fat Tuesday. Pecan Praline, Lemon Curd, Regular Cinnamon. They've got a really neat cheesecake one they fill with cheesecake dip. Hopefully, they took care of you for Valentine's Day, had tons of sweetheart boxes, tons of dessert options for Valentine's Day. They make all their cheeses locally in-house. And remember, uh, get a local key and cake. They do a wonderful job with it. Johnson Hill Creamery, 662-419-9201. And then last but certainly not least, podcast brought to you by Visit Oxford. Visit OxfordMS.com. If you're coming to town this week, any week, baseball starting on Friday, a lot going on. Head to the website, visitoxford.com. Go to the events page, see everything going on, as well as where to stay, what to eat, and plenty more. They'll keep you updated there. You've got the Oxford Community Community Market tomorrow. Marcus King's at the Lyric on Wednesday. A lot of sporting events this weekend. You've got uh, the basketball, the women's basketball team at home on Thursday, men's basketball team at home on Tuesday against South Carolina, and then again, baseball starting on Friday. Again, that is visitoxfordms.com. People are excited. They're excited for a couple different reasons. You know, baseball, too, and this is just, I mean, it's the way it's been. I mean, frankly, throughout – 
most of Mike's tenure is that it's also sort of baseball's job to salvage the fan base because basketball, even if it's on the bubble, it's typically not a tournament team. It's typically something where they move on and change their focus. And see, I think that plays a role into it too. A lot of schools that have really good basketball programs, nobody's paying attention to baseball until like March, mid-March. But Ole Miss, the clock flips quicker. I mean, right now, everybody's much more locked into baseball against Charleston Southern on Friday than they are whatever's going on with basketball the rest of the way. It's just it's just human nature because of the way the teams are set up for postseason runs or the seasons or whatever. But it allows early momentum to permeate the fan base and to get more involved early and go, oh, God, look, the baseball team's 12-2. and two. It's starting to get warmer. The flowers are blooming. The Masters are around the corner. Well, let's, let, let's go. We're all in right here. And, and, I, and I think that plays a role in it. Uh, and you look at it here, it's, it's a good and a bad thing as we sort of deep dive this team a little bit is that their non-conference schedule is somewhat soft. But I'm not sure that's overly a bad thing considering what's going on with this team right now and trying to figure out this pitching staff because they open up against Charleston Southern, which is a favorite of Mark McMillan, the former Ole Miss assistant, the head coach at Charleston Southern. I think they're the Buccaneers. Um, VCU is in town the second weekend. That's the really offensive team that had like a 30 RPI last year. They ended up in, uh, in the Starkville Regional. I think they played state or at least we're in their regional last year, if I have that right. ULM, uh, sorry, that's a midweek. And then UCF, um, the third weekend, I was right about that earlier. They are on the road in Orlando. Um, good program. I mean, actually took two out of three from Ole Miss last year. They're fine. They're not great. They're not terrible. And then Oral Roberts to, uh, to finish prior to league play. So not really named teams, but not the worst mix when you're trying to put a lot of buttons together, when you're trying to figure out what to do with some pitching staff stuff. And then they open up with maybe the well, sure the worst team in the West, one of the worst teams in the conference. They open up at Auburn, which would give them a chance from a uh, just get a road win, kind of start the year off well from a conference play standpoint. The schedule was pretty friend, friendly to them, and who they do not play, Ole Miss this year, not uh, not playing Vanderbilt, Florida, or Georgia, are the uh, the three teams that they pick. Is that the top three teams in the East actually in the preseason standings? I want to say they miss all three East favorites. In, in I think they did. And to, to propel your scheduling point forward, you, Tennessee will be pretty good, but you get Tennessee in Oxford and then you go to Kentucky. Like that's when as big of a bear as the West is and really just the SEC in general, you talk about kind of dipping your toes and slowly wading into the water. That's about and then Alabama. Start you could ask for. Yeah, then Alabama. The, you know, the, <laughs> I, I, we, Colin and I, we ended up, I was like, we're not going to go down schedule by ser- like series by series and make predictions. But hell, we got all the way to South Carolina at April 14th or whatever. It was like, Damn, this uh, this first half is pretty favorable. It it gets stiff at the end, but I think that will help a team like this that has question marks on the mound, like you mentioned. It's 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 the for an SEC schedule. It is the easiest SEC schedule you can have because even when you talk about it, it's really difficult. There it, there's a breakup somewhere. I mean, look, you know, at South Carolina is a tough series, but this is not Ray Tanner's Gamecocks. I mean, they're fine, they're good, but they're nothing crazy. This is not Michael Roth throwing eighty miles an hour by you all day long. You know, they get the back-to-back series against State and Arkansas, which will be absolute bears. And there's no doubt about that. That's two hellaciously big series. But then you get Missouri to break it up, like before LSU. And then, you know, A&M is down this year under Schlossnagel in year one. I mean, it's it's a very, very, very doable schedule for Ole Miss this season from that standpoint. Um, and to not to bring that back to the big picture thing, but if you want to wrap it up that way, Go win 21 conference games and make sure you're not playing outside of Oxford until Omaha. This is the best opportunity on paper. And, sir, there'll be surprises, and someone will be better than we think or worse than we think. It never, like, goes how we think it's going to go to chalk. 
But like, if you want to tie that into the bigger picture, go win 20 SEC games and be the fourth national seed and make sure you're not leaving Oxford until you go to Nebraska. Yeah, because they've been, they've only been a national seed twice in all of this. They were a national seed in 18 for Tennessee Tech, and they were a national seed in 2005 for Texas. And that's three home supers. In addition, or like, the, well, the, well, those would have been home supers had they won, but, you know, they lose. The oh, right. No, I know what you mean. The, right. You know, and then they look, because they lose, I mean, just quickly for any new fans out there. Yeah, they lose to Texas, and, and frankly, it's kind of a screw job on both teams from a, who they played in a Super Regional standpoint. They get lucky in 06. They get Miami at home because Miami won the Nebraska Regional. That was a two seed back in Oxford. In 07, they play an Arizona State team that was just much better than them. There's no doubt about that. That team was really damn good with Sun Devils. In 09, Virginia was out there and beat UC Irvine to get to Oxford. Ole Miss would have played Irvine had, had it stayed scratch. In 14, they go on the road and win. In 18, they would have played Texas back in Oxford the next weekend because they were the national seed had they beaten Tennessee Tech. And then, yeah, as you said, they go to Arkansas and Arizona when it stayed scratch in 19 and 21. The weird part in all that, too, remember the 16 team actually should have been a national seed if the other team had not worn purple and gold? And look, the national guys love them to death, tried to sell the metrics of that. It's like, actually, what metrics are you pointing to, pal? Remember that night, that 16 team that wasn't that good, probably one of Mike's better coaching jobs, was the ninth seed, but should have been eight. LSU got him in eighth, and Ole Miss had him. If you're measuring 10 metrics, they had him in seven, including head to head. It's where Kendall and them sort of wrapping their mind around, well, but it's the eye test. And it's like, okay, guys, like I, I like the eye test is they had yellow uniforms. On. Yeah, eye test <laughs> is the color test. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's what just, happened. Yeah. But then go win it this year. Go go be a third, fourth seed and make sure you know you have the most optimal setup. Because there's also a difference between being the eighth and the third. Oh, there's a hell of a difference, especially now when they do seed to 16 and it's not yep. just straight regional, regional setups like it was prior to that. Um Ole Miss coming into the season, maybe the number one offense in the country. Um, there's, you know, they're from an SEC standpoint, I think it's debatable as far as um, whether Ole Miss or LSU is the is the better offense. But those two are also um, two of the top couple offenses in the country. It really depends on what you're looking for. I think Ole Miss has on paper the best one through nine in the country as far as hitting you up and down the lineup. They've got parts of each, you know, each section of the lineup that I like, but really it's just the overall one through nine balance, which is crazy for a team that doesn't get lottery scholarships to have that one versus the other side of this. And then LSU might have the best middle of an order led by Jacob Berry, Dylan Cruz, those guys that just really bang it around there, they're in Baton Rouge. But either way, this team is going to be predicated by offense. Um, they've got so many guys back. I mean, you look at it here, you got to put some DHs in and different things, but from a sample size of what they've done during their careers, Tim Elko, Jacob Gonzalez, Justin Bench, McCants, Peyton Chatnier, Dunhurst. I really like Reagan Burford, the Juco kid that's back. We'll see what Kemp Alderman does. Kevin Graham, Hayden Leatherwood, whoever else is there. I mean, they, they've got options. They've got tons of options. Mike has enough bats to even kind of move around guys to be better defensively because he's got people that can fill in multiple roles, do a lot of things. I mean, it's – it's the best overall position group that, I mean, maybe they've had, or at least I've covered in a long time from a standpoint of there's not really a hole there. I mean, I look at that, those nine or 10 guys, and look, there's some expectations that have to be hit. I mean, and, I, and, and we'll talk about that as we kind of get into some individual players a little bit. But even if they sort of kind of do what we think is possible, there's no clear hole in that lineup. There's no one or two spots where 
you're just trying to roll the ball ball over or move somebody around. I mean, it's where that pays off is a pitcher never gets a break. It's on nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. He makes a mistake. Barring injuries, it's just hard to see where – I don't want to say they're not slump-proof because that's not right. At some point, they're going to have a rough time for a couple of weeks because every team does. But if you can minimize that to just a couple of players at a time, they've got a chance to really put a very significant 56 games up offensively. One of the exercises last week I'm glad I did was go through the 2021 offensive numbers, and you almost forget. Like, like when you look at, like, Jacob Gonzalez's – thousand four OPS and you're like okay holy holy shit like as a freshman yeah I mean Tim Elko what he missed how many games he had you know what 11 19 OPS and he had what I think 16 home runs and 55 RBIs I think like 35 of those games he had either played in or had a healthy knee which you know seems important I'll be glad not to see him kind of remember to shuffle the steps when he would round the bases that just was always visually unappeasing I was like like, don't don't twist another one but anyway you you're right it's you don't want to say it's slump proof, but I think it also it's expectations have to be met, but it's also a lot of guys with known sample sizes and you know what they are. And on top of that, it's like Hayden Dunhurst struggled for a stretch last year. Even TJ McCants did for about three weeks there. I want to say it was April, but I'm probably just. Yeah. And he's a true freshman and Dunhurst was playing with a broken thumb. Right, exactly. And then Peyton Chagnier, I, I don't think it was related to the quad or hamstring thing, but he had a stretch kind of late in the season early in the postseason we didn't hit and then he comes out and hits the huge home run in game three against southern to really kind of set the tone there but when it, like when you have a guy or two like that struggling if seven other dudes are raking that makes it a hell of a lot easier to hide you know you talk about shot yay and i i do think he's going to be the leadoff guy i would assume they're going to run him out there first and you can make the argument and it's one of it's, it's one of the first questions you know, we talk about mike's got to put this thing together in different ways He's not probably going to have the best stats of a leadoff guy. You could do other things. Obviously, New School talks about, hey, you should just hit Jacob Gonzalez there because you get your best player as many bats as possible. Do you hit him second? What do you do? But I do think Chatagnier gives them an energy they need. He seems to sort of be their spark plug. And I feel like it's maybe even more important on a roster where you don't have a lot of outward vocal leaders on the pitching staff that you have, you know, they're, they're not going to get – like, this is nothing against Derek. I, I don't mean this. Like, if he's good, he's good. If they move it around. But you're not getting, like, the Pomeranz, Lance Lynn aura around him where, hey, we're going out there and we're doing this. They're going to have to generate that offensively, I feel like, a lot of times. And Chatagnier, if nothing else, I feel, I feel like he gets him in the game. He's He gets the fan base energized a little bit when he's out there. He, he's a spark plug that it's – it wouldn't justify it if he doesn't hit at all, but I do think he's worth a certain amount of intangibles, even if he doesn't necessarily have the best stats on the team. I, I think he elevates people around him a little bit. I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. It's kind of like you like you're not getting the West Burton at the plate type thing from anybody, and mm-hmm. it's and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you do need some of that, and I think Shotney provides it. But if you go down the rest of the lineup, you don't really have a ton of that. Most of those guys are pretty even keeled guys in terms of showing their emotion from Gonzalez to Graham to bench on down. I mean, I guess you could bat Knox LaPoster lead off having beat up the catcher and then put someone else in there to start every game to kind of set the tone. But outside of that, you're right. I think so. There's some intangible value to that as well. And, you know, if he's producing up to the level of like your typical leadoff hitter and kind of doing those things, that just makes two through seven, two through eight, whatever, just that more of a nightmare for opposing pitchers as well. Yeah, you know, you mentioned it. We don't have to run through it. It would be a little bit boring. But, you know, barring something crazy, you know what you're going to get out of Graham. You know what you're going to get out of Elko. Um, 
Justin Bench is maybe the most underrated player on the team because he just gets on base and he's the best defender everywhere but catcher. Um, Dunhurst would, I'm sure, be a better defensive catcher. Better than they had anywhere else all year. It was unbelievable. He And, and look, that, that's a huge thing for Mike is figuring out where do I put him defensively because he's going to be the best guy there, but how do you feel in everybody else around him? And I know, you know, it's the argument of, hey, do you put him in center and do you move McCants in? Do you do this? Do you do that? I mean, it's, it's sort of all over the place. Um, Doesn't that feel like he starts opening day at third base, but with the hope that it eventually becomes Burford and you can put bench in center field? That seems like the most logical route in terms of like – And then you would move McCants to right? Yeah, I think McCants to right and then Graham to left or whatever. I think that would be – Because it also would give you a little more speed out there because, frankly, if you want to find a fault, they were not very good defensively last year in the outfield at all. Don't you think McCants – like, look, I'm not knocking him for the way he played center field last year. The guy's an infielder playing center field in the SEC as a freshman. Like, it just kind of was what it was. But he wasn't, like, terrible in some of the senses that would make you a decent corner outfield. There's just a whole other element that comes to playing center that he just didn't have, and nor should you expect him to have. Like, it's not un- it's not crazy to think he could be a good corner outfielder. Yeah, I think the two biggest keys on this thing, in, in related to what you just said, and, and again, assuming that expectations are even sort of in the ballpark, you know, whatever, um, is that Burford and Alderman, You've got Burford that is sitting there. He comes into Ole Miss as a true freshman. He only stays for the fall. He leaves, goes to Northwest Florida or whatever it was, and hits well there. I think he hit like 339 or something like that. Comes back, and he's just been very solid. I mean, he's, he's kind of got some gap power. He's hit for average. If he can do that, like you said, it lets Bench really move around. It lets you really shift your entire defense as you need with different guys. And then the other side of it, Kemp Alderman, and you, you get the big home run from LSU against LSU last year. Otherwise, they had tried to shorten him up. He was completely lost on anything that wasn't straight coming out of the pitcher's hands. He's been better. And now, you know, I, I've been very careful, and it's one of the things I've learned over my – I think Mike asked me the other day, he was like, what year is this? And I was like, God, it's 17. It's like my 17 years with this. Um, but fall doesn't really count because it's almost like spring training. Pitchers are working on certain things. You've got pitchers who are behind, and maybe they're sitting out, they're coming off the summer, they're doing all these different things. Um, but he's hit the spring, too. And it's not just power. It's also he's fighting off stuff. He's he's doing some little things from a bat standpoint. And now, look, you don't need Kemp Alderman to never strike out. You want him to strike out some. You don't need him to hit 340. That's not the point. But if you had somebody at the bottom of that order that hit 260, 265 with 13 bombs, that adds another another element to this team. It would allow him to DH. You still got Hayden Leatherwood over there as a microwave for just at-bats or platooning or whatever it is you need to do. You still got Ben Van Cleve that Mike's going to give at-bats to. So, I mean, I know the fan base kind of has a lot of different opinions about him, but he's going to he's going to play, so let's go ahead and factor it in. And it lets them put this optimal lineup in place. I think Burford and Alderman, because they're two of the guys without these sample sizes, I think they make so much of this go because if neither one of them does anything, well, suddenly, okay, then this guy's got to play more and you really got to kind of shuffle things around to make it optimal. It's still good, but to make it optimal. But if both those dudes at least sort of show up and then you don't have the sophomore slumps, you know, I mean, McCants has got to show up in year two. He's got a full book against him as far as what he can hit and what he doesn't. He's going to have to make some adjustments. You know, one of the best examples of that, Austin Bousfield. He had the huge freshman year in 2012. 
In 2013, frankly, he was he kind of sucked as a sophomore. And then he comes back as a junior and he wins the Ferris Award and he ends up being an All-American. So there, there is a sophomore equation to this thing. But for the sake of the podcast right here, Burford, Alderman, I think those are the two dudes that if you gave me somebody's stats offensively, I could really tell you just how elite this offense ends up being. Agree, because it also brings into like the Leatherwood aspect of it, which that guy last year hit pretty well and was I thought was sort of shortchanged in some at some times where Mike made him a matchup guy, like like didn't seem to play him against left-handed pitching, was not an everyday guy when I think he could have been. I think some of that had to do with Mike not trusting him as much in the field. But if those two guys, as you mentioned, Burford and Alderman are good, you have a perfectly capable everyday SEC hitter that you're struggling to find at bats for. And talk about a hell of a problem to have. But I agree. I don't. I haven't clearly haven't seen like any of the inner squads or anything that's come up to this point. I can only just go off of what you read, see here, and all that type of stuff. But I'll be interested to see the Burford aspect of it, and then the um, the Alderman thing as well. Like it's what are they? I, I, like if we played the two stats game, guy. Like if you give me guys two stats, like what did this team do? You probably want to throw a pitcher in there. But from an offensive standpoint, if you're playing that game, I think it's both of them because it just makes your team that much deeper and then it makes it more versatile. And if you want to tie in kind of the bench point to it, as you're trying to figure it out and give guys different at bats, having a dude that can move around to two, three different positions can help you facilitate that as well. Uh, kind of indirectly. A reminder that you have until February the 20th to sign up for Oxford park commission, youth baseball and softball for the 2022 spring season leagues open to ages five to 17 in baseball, five to 12 in softball. The cost to uh, participate is $50 per player. Season begins on Monday, April the 25th. All games played at M-Trade Park. Go to OxfordParkCommission.com to sign up. We're brought to you by Brothrow. It's a social sports betting network, free to use. Um, I was introduced to Brothrow back in the fall. It's a really cool, fun way to bet. No third party, no juice. Over time, that saves you money. You can start your own group, make friends, invite your friends. Payment happens within 24 hours of the conclusion of your bet. You can take the other side of an existing bet, start a new bet, and more at Brothrow.com. Valentine's Day on Monday, running out of time, but if you're still looking for that perfect gift for your special someone, Dead Soxy has your gifting covered. Nothing says I love you like some good socks. Dead Soxy has increased the discount on our Rebel Grove code to 30% off from now through midnight on Monday. So head over to the site, see all the new styles, take advantage of this amazing offer, and happy Valentine's Day from Dead Soxy. Game Changer Patches. The only two-patch system available in the market to stop hangovers before they start. The warm-up patch is used before or while you drink. The overtime patch is used after you've been drinking to recover while you sleep. The all-natural ingredients will keep you in the game, ready for the next place. Go to GameChangerPatch.com, enter the promo code REBELGROVE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase. ACS is owned by Clay McNutt in Baldwin, Mississippi, Automation and Control Systems, LLC. It's a complete electrical control system solution provider and a Rockwell Automation-recognized system integrator. They've got a full-time dedicated emergency service and troubleshooting staff and a UL508A panel shop. If you're in need of custom HMI and SCADA solutions or large horsepower VFD specialist, ACS has you covered. They can service and install Rockwell Automation, Allen Bradley, Siemens, ABB, Square D, and many other manufacturers. For more information or to get in touch with ACS, go to acsllcms.com. Or call 662-601-4381. We're brought to you by Lamons Fine Jewelry. Be a great place to stop this weekend. Get your Valentine's Day gifting done. 
It's uh, 1126 North Lamar Boulevard in Oxford. They've been serving the Oxford area for almost three quarters of a century, from engagement rings to wedding rings, buying jewelry, watches, pearls, fashion jewelry, children's jewelry, collectibles, and more. Lamons is the gold standard in fine jewelry. Go to LamonsFineJewelry.com or call them at 662-234-2777. The College Corners, your one-stop rebel shop, two locations in the Jackson area in Ridgeland. It's next to Fleet Feet in Flowood. It's next to Half Shell. If you don't live in Jackson, just go to collegecornerstore.com. Plus, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you're tailgating in Oxford or home gating with friends and family, the College Corner has you covered for game day, the largest selection of Rebel gear in central Mississippi. And we're brought to you by Pinnacle. Pinnacle is based in Madison, Mississippi, represents clients in more than 20 states, has advisors in multiple states as well. They provide detailed Specialized investment management, financial planning, retirement planning for individuals and businesses, and much more. At Pinnacle, investing is treated like a commodity. Decisions are made using objective information and research, not emotions. So regardless of your level of wealth, Pinnacle will sit down with you, listen to your goals, study your expenses, and put forth a comprehensive, detailed financial and retirement plan that is built just for you. It's mypinwealth.com, M-Y-P-I-N-N wealth.com. And we're brought to you by John Edwards, Regency Travel Incorporated in Memphis. We're going to be talking to John soon, uh, doing a travel podcast for you guys. But if you uh, need information now, get in touch with John. Just give him some parameters and a budget. He'll give you options that you're not going to find on your own that will create a trip that is a uh, one that creates a lifetime of unique memories. 901-494-3387 or send him an email at jedwards at regencytravel.com. And Bench has got to stay healthy. You know, he's fought some yeah. injury bug his entire career. He's a, he's been a little and not his fault. I mean, he he got hit he got hit and broke a hand bunning one time. There's nothing you can do about that. But he's got to. He, yeah, I feel like him staying healthy is a big deal. Do what? You remember that he was he missed six weeks with a broken hand, and then Mike bunted him his first at bat back, and I was like, wow, this is bold. Wasn't it against like it wasn't Landon Sims, but it was like some like it was like the state closer or something, right? Like wasn't it? It wasn't a lollipopper. Yeah, it was like something really like, whoa, okay. Yeah, get in there, get yeah, it down. I derailed you, but I did, that was just amazing to me. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, again, if you want to play the complete Pollyanna side of this, because we just talked about, hey, maybe there's a sophomore slump, maybe there's an injury, because somebody's going to get banged up at some point. There's also Hayden Leatherwood's going into only his second full season. He had 2020. Who says he doesn't kind of, you know what I mean? There's a lot of, ba- ba- you know, variables here where this thing could really kind of get interesting. Um and then Mike's got the situation of he needs to get some other dudes at bats because you look at roster turnover for 2023 and not to go, hey, you sacrificed 2022 for that, but holy hell at some roster turnover um, going into 2022 because offensively, Elko, Bench, Chatney could go technically, Dunhurst, Graham, Leatherwood. At yep. least. At least. I mean, out of the out of the lineup, the only people who are hundred percent back next season, Burford, Alderman, and McCants. And that's assuming none of those are sophomore eligible. Honestly, I don't even know. What's Gonzalez's birthday? I think he's a three-year guy, but that would be worth checking because whenever he's draft eligible, he's out of here. But that's a lot of turnover. So it's a just you know, you got guys like Banks Tolly that in a lot of seasons would play. You know, I, there's people that really like Tim Same what he can do. I I think there's dudes that really can help, but I just don't know where they fit in as freshmen right here. 
Um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, or JUCO guys in some of their circumstances. But either way, it's hard to factor them into how do you get all your guys ready while also maybe giving other guys opportunities at the same time. And another guy who's talked a lot entering last season that we've yet to bring up yet is Calvin Harris. I assume he's just the yeah. backup catcher, but that's a guy I assume one is fully healthy now, but you thought he would hit more than he did last year. And it wasn't completely fair. It wasn't sample size. He wasn't completely healthy, but like you go 10, 11 deep without bringing him up. That's, that's something. And I think he's going to play. He can play first. He can play corner outfield. And I, I think – I alluded – Mike sort of kind of alluded to this on the media day. I think he's going to attempt to rest Dunhurst a little more this season, especially when you have Calvin who's so capable back there. I mean, he's like a top three catcher in the country at high school. So, I think that you can get him back there because you really need him as a starter next year. You get him reps. You give Dunhurst a few days off. You do some different things. I mean, hell, you can even let Dunhurst DH some days if you want to still get him some offensive at-bats. But I think Harris gives you an extra level of versatility from a catching standpoint to just – to just kind of play it more of, hey, Dunhurst is my catcher, but I, that Tuesday against Southern Miss, you can throw Harris back there and there's not some crazy fall off. And, like, if you wanted to get him at first, I was going to bring this up. It may not be needed, but is there any shot you see Tim Elko at third at any point? He's taken ground balls there and he's looked okay, but I think it would take Burford not transitioning and an injury. Okay. I think it would be at least one injury and Burford not playing well over there to get there. At least that's in the arsenal because Kale Baker wasn't playing third base. No, I mean, look, Tim came in as a third baseman. I mean, I wrote about this a few weeks ago. He's a fascinating story because he comes in as the highest rated position player in that class. Tyler Keenan just starts hitting from day one, turns into an All-American immediately at his position that was in his class as well. Tim takes two years, really struggles, finally figures it out in 2020. The season gets canceled. Last year he tears an ACL. I mean, it's 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 been just one, you know, bag of tricks after another for him as far as putting a whole season together. He seems healthy. He's 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 bulked up a little bit. I thought he had gained some weight in a good way when I saw him uh two Fridays ago, whenever it was. He's he's kind of the epitome of that really good college baseball player, which is kind of what this team is in several in, in several spots. If you told me that he hit for a pretty high average and absolutely hit double-digit home runs, I mean, I think barring injury, that's that's not just expected, but I would be shocked if it didn't happen. Not leaving it after 18 or 19 is something that he could get some credit for, too, because he could have definitely done that. And I, I, some of this may be revisionist history, but it's hard to remember back to 18. I don't – because they platooned for the first month and a half of that season, maybe right at a month. He didn't do anything wrong. Is Keenan hit at such a level? It was like, you have to keep playing this guy. It wasn't that like Keenan beat him out because Elko couldn't get it necessarily done at the plate. Keenan just hit at a level for that first about seven weeks of that season to where it's like, I have no choice. I have to keep this guy in the lineup. He did that. And then Tim, I think, pressed. I think Tim saw that and went, oh, crap. I've got to, you know, and you get in your head and you got to come on and on and on and Sample sizes are small, and suddenly you've lost the season, you know, mentally just in, in, in a weird transition from high level for, you know, high school player to SEC and struggling and watching Tyler do it. Because, you know, you go down the list of guys who just hit from day one and never stopped. Tyler Keenan's pretty close to the top of that list that from freshman through junior. I mean, it was, it was a pretty prolific career there, there, there at third base. Um, so transition to the staff a little bit, and this is – Fairly amazing on how – I'm as interested in a season as I've been in a while because this is not the way Mike really wants to manage. 
and yet I think he's being forced into managing a pretty deep pitching staff, but a pitching staff that does not have a lot of elite arms. Um, it, it's, it's a good college staff is what it is. You know, I mean, in a, in a completely Pollyanna world, they're much like Arizona last year where they pitch it well enough. They get some clutch stuff. They put guys in the right roles and they bang their way to the College World Series through offense. In a world where it doesn't work out, you don't have the elite guy on Friday night. You kind of struggle in some other days and it spirals a little bit. You look around the league, though, there are not as many top-end arms in the SEC as there have been in some past seasons. I mean, there's always going to be good aces, but it doesn't look like it looked last year, year before, maybe even three years ago. Does that potentially help Ole Miss in, in where they're sitting from a staff standpoint? This is one of the most fascinating league-wide storylines I think we'll see this year because by late April, are there going to be guys that are every bit as talented as some of the dudes we've seen in the past? We just don't know their names yet. Of course, it's the SEC. But I was wondering why that was the case, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And Joe Healy, for base, a guy that writes for Baseball America, I didn't listen to the podcast, but he teased it in his podcast. They talked about the same thing. He thinks it's largely because a lot of these guys that would be those guys you know already didn't get freshman seasons. He oh. thinks some of it is 2020 pandemic induced, which is an aspect I'd never really thought about before. How many of these guys will we know? Oh, he wasn't the Friday guy last year, but he will be this year. If you had gotten a full 2020 season, I don't know the exact math on that. Someone smarter than me is going to have to go back and do that spreadsheet or, you know, connect those dots. But I think you're right. I think that helps Ole Miss to some degree because in a year where you have, I mean, do you know who LSU's Friday night guy is going to be? Uh, not off really? my head, but like you could, there's a couple guys you could guess, but the fact that you don't know that, I mean, do you know anyone in the West besides Sims? Like Arkansas would have been Paulette, but he's now out for the season, right? Uh, I'm assuming AM would be like Micah Dallas, but yeah, he's not that like that guy's not first round Friday night material. Like, so everyone seems to be in flux a little bit, and I think that'll help Ole Miss that. Derek Diamond just needs to be really good. He doesn't have to be great. He doesn't have to be dominant. He just needs to be good. And if they can be good all three days, they'll end up with an advantage over most other staffs. Because if the two transfers, and granted, we don't know a ton about them yet, are good and, like, you have that advantage on Sunday, I don't think you need a Doug Nikhazy or a Gunnar Hoagland on Friday in this year's SEC. Now, the flip side of that coin is, have you seen the lineups? This is going to be an offensive league on roids. But <laughs> – you know, Not literally, probably, but yes. Yeah, like, so I think it does play in their favor a little bit because they're also going to be deeper in the bullpen. Oh, look, the the, the, the the ingredient to a really successful SEC season is to hit and hammer your way to Sunday wins and hit all the bad pitching that's going on around the league on Sundays while you're getting – because you think you have pitching doubt, you're getting serviceable to solid Sunday starts from whomever that is. I mean, Diamond, Diamond's fascinating because, A, he's got to stay healthy. Um, he's a guy who, you know, he had some some loss of velocity, had soreness at the end of last season, did some therapy stuff over the summer on that elbow, ends up not being surgical, ends up pitching and throwing pretty well at times. But instead of being 95, 96, he's trying to pitch high 80s, around 90, low. He, he, he's talking about spin rates and doing this and complimenting differently and, and becoming more of a pitcher than a thrower. Huge recruit out of high school, obviously, the whole Stanford thing. I mean, there's there's all this pedigree there. And Mike has got – and I asked Mike about this. He's got to give him enough sample size to see what he can do while also realizing he has a lot of guys that are very similar if there are changes that need to be made. And that's what's fascinating from this thing from a, from a managerial standpoint as far as where he puts his rotation in place and who's the main bullpen arms is he's got six or seven pitchers who 
I don't mean they have the same stuff wise, but if you get, if you put all of their stats up for the season together, you probably would have a hard time going, oh, well, that's for sure that guy, or that's for sure that guy, or that's for sure that guy. They're all kind of the same. You know, I, I likened it to they have a bunch of Saturday starters. I mean, even they, that you know, Hayden Dunhurst, and he was he was not being negative. He said, we don't have the upper elite arms. We got a lot of depth and guys that we like well enough. So figuring out which of those guys makes sense while also not giving them too much rope if something is not working is maybe Mike's biggest challenge of the season. I, I don't know this. He hasn't announced this, at least that I have seen as of 228 on February the 13th. I would expect Gaddis and Washburn to be the other two guys, um, at least to start. If I'm wrong, great. We'll talk about the other guys in a second. You know, Washburn coming from Oregon State, he's got a ton of pedigree with Jared Washburn being his dad, wins over 100 major league games or whatever he did during his career, I guess most notably an angel. Big Packers. Um, do what? He's a big Packers fan. Is he a big Packers fan? Yeah. Okay, there you go. Oh, that's oh, that's right. Sorry, that thread. Yeah, never mind. Um, So – he, look, he threw three times in their regional. He is at least somewhat battle-tested from the Pac-12. He's going to give you some toughness. And then we'll see what he looks like because it's got a transition. I mean, the, the step up from Texas A&M Corpus Christi to Ole Miss is so severe and so big. But at the same time, Gaddis gives you a chance to maybe have found just that lottery ticket in the portal that maybe you didn't expect because he was hurt. I mean, he had UCL relocation surgery. He's doing rehab and therapy on that. He gets healthy halfway through the season, and I don't have it in front of me exactly, but I think he gave up four earned runs in his last 52.1 innings once he got healthy. And that's pretty good against anybody. I mean, that's good high school numbers if if you had them. And, you know, he's playing – I mean, it's not Ole Miss and State, but he's playing Sam Houston and some teams like that that are pretty good baseball programs. During that run, he's uh, deferred medical school for a year, smart guy to come to Ole Miss and finish his career. So – Gaddis gives them a chance to be very steady on one of those other two days. I think that has a chance to really sticking. I think it's there. And then it's just a matter of what to do with these returners where you have some sample sizes, but putting them in the right place. You know, Drew McDaniel, big time recruit out of high school. I think a lot of his issues have just been mental, just kind of getting past some of the mental strain that's happened with his uh, his transition to the SEC. I know he's worked with some people about that. He The, the, the talk is that he's gotten better. If so, maybe he's one of those that just blows up and is really, really good for Ole Miss this season. I don't know. You know, Jack Doherty was not even on the active roster this time last year. He ends up being a bit of a savior for him the last season. He can end up being a starter. I think from a stuff standpoint, his stuff has been as good as anybody so far this spring. You know, Brandon Johnson, he's been able to extend and do some different things, or he could be the closer. There are so many spots that they can put guys in and typically, Mike sort of has roles defined by now. He knows, hey, that's this guy, that's this guy. You you, you don't have these major level tinkering. I think this might require in a in a non perfect world, which you're never gonna, you're always gonna have to some extent. It's gonna require more tinkering. I mean, he's he's gonna really be having a chessboard with some of these pitching pieces. And it goes all the way up to diamond. Like a lot of times, you think about this happening from two to your two three guy on the weekend back to your midweek guy, and then kind of some bullpen rolls. But I think this starts top to bottom, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. With if you had to take a guess between the two transfers, don't you end up? I don't haven't seen a ton of the Gaddis thing, but like what you can gather, he's a guy that has two pretty good pitches, and he knows how to pitch, and he's not going to blow you away with velocity. That doesn't that scream a little more Sunday, which could give you a hell of an advantage on Sunday. And then Washburn is like at least a legitimate three-pitch dude that's, what, 93, 94, something like that. That, to me, I'm not saying it plays out that way, 
But like that to me seems at the end of the day, probably him on Saturday and Gaddis on Sunday if they're both good. Yeah, they profile as those days. Yeah, that to, again, a lot can go into that. I don't know how healthy, like what Gaddis being healthy changes. And then I don't know, really know what to make of McDaniel either. Like some of that last year too, I think was adjustment to the SEC. But like he also became predictable. Like, you know, between year one and two, at times, like, did they get him a third pitch or did they make him a hell of a lot better at, at – I think he threw a changeup. I can't remember what it was. To where he's just not as predictable in some instances as well. And then, you know, it's learning how to pitch too. Like, I think that's a big one with him. And then the, the diamond aspect of it is so fascinating to me because you mentioned it, learning how to pitch and him talking about spin rate and some of that. And then some of that learning how to pitch, isn't that between the ears, the mental aspect of it? He has the pop-up at state, embarrassing thing that wasn't really his fault. He got tabletops by his third baseman. But, like, stuff like that, like body language and things like that, go along with learning how to pitch. And my theory on this is, did we see some of that form last year? Remember his last regular season start against Georgia? He had nothing that entire night. They got down, like, big, like, three or four runs in the first inning. But he made it five and a third. He got them to the sixth inning. And I think he allowed like three runs in the first inning, but one over the next five. And then he kind of does the death by fly ball thing, which is, I look back, not totally fair in the SEC tournament against Vanderbilt. He struck out like 11 dudes and was pretty good the rest of the way. There's probably one in there I'm missing, but like the Georgia one stuck out to me. Cause it's like, okay, this guy's actually kind of showing some, some toughness. I think here. he needed to make against Auburn too. Yeah, and like I just I, I just wonder if he started discovering that last year because he got kind of kicked down and then he had to come back in the lineup once or rotation, excuse me, once Hoagland went down. And you saw a tougher version of him. Is that there to stay? I don't know, but that could be a game changer with Derek Diamond. Well, and I think that's where he's got to be okay pitching that way. You know, and he he talked about that because this this iteration of of Diamond doesn't have a lot of swing and miss. I mean, that that's the reason that people are questioning him on Friday is that there's just not a lot of swing and miss in this um, when he was pitches. You know, he talked about trying to get his breaking ball to be more of a wipeout, to be more of a swing and miss, and maybe it does. Maybe that's the thing that turns to something. But as of right now, there's just not a lot of that there. Um, and, and, and that potentially limits what you can do um, on Friday, but on the weekend rotation in this league with these offenses that you just mentioned uh, also. So I, I, I don't know. But, yeah, he cannot have a mentality of I'm going to throw this by somebody because he's just not right now. That's not what this is. But he's the only guy – you know, they only have two pitchers on the staff that ever started an SEC game in the regular season, Jeremy Daniel and Derek Diamond. That's it. Um, he's become this wily veteran, somebody who has 18 career starts, something like that. That's it. And he's 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 the ace and, and the veteran of the staff at this point. So he's got to be okay with that. Um, maybe he is. Maybe it's something where they know exactly what they can get out of him. But, yeah, five, the goal for him is to find a way through six innings. Don't make you have to go to the bullpen early on Friday nights. Find a way to average six innings to start. That's what that 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 that, that should be his goal. His goal going in. They do have some bullpen depth. I mean, there's some root, some some newcomers I like. I, I like Hunter Elliott a lot. The freshman at Tupelo, Mason Nichols has thrown well. Raleigh Maddox has has been good. Um, and then at some point, you hope you get Max Schofi back to some extent. He he didn't have that surgery until April. So he's not on a timeline to be available for opening day by any stretch of the imagination. And there's some wild cards. You know, what do you get? Because we're not talking about them. And frankly, it's partly because the staff is not talking about them. Mike didn't mention either of these guys, I don't think, during media day. What does a year two or a year three look like with Jackson Kimbrell and Josh Mallets? You know, you, you know, returners that 
did some things last year, right, wrong, or indifferent, had, were pretty good at times, frankly, but but it wasn't consistent all the way through. There's just a lot of question marks here. I'm telling you, I mean, there are so many potential options. And Mike told me to a question I asked him two Fridays ago. I said, you know, what do you do to get pitcher sample sizes? And he said that he thought he messed up last year, that he had he looked up and he had 19 pitchers with stats at one point, and that while it's good to get guys innings, he it, it limited his ability to get a decent number of guys a lot of innings. He was giving too many guys one or two innings and using them, but not using them enough to really see what he had. And I think he's already trying to figure out, hey, I've got a lot of options here, and I got to figure out what to what to do with it to to kind of put your best you know your best nine on the field if you want to take a take a term and use it for pitching. And then the wild card in all this, the Dylan Delusia thing. What do you think comes of that? Because doesn't that guy project as more of if he's the best version of whatever he is? Doesn't that project more as like a rotation starting pitcher guy? He he feels like a Saturday Sunday I, guy. I people are gonna light this on fire, but like if is that the guy you're not talking about right now? That in three months you're like, wow, that guy. I like him. He reminds me of just a really good college pitcher. There's not like a ton of prospect there. There's not whatever, but you know, God, and I hate even making comparisons because I know what people do, but you know, Aaron Greenwood. Right. Where it's like, hey, the dude just gets out in the SEC and he does whatever. I can see that. I mean, he was the first inner squad. It was cold as hell. It was miserable out there. The wind was blowing. And he was 92 to 94 with a crisp slider. Like, it played. Like, it was it was fine. They would say, but he was getting outs. He was commanding the thing. And, and he brings some toughness to him, too. I think it's what's important for Washburn. I think Delucia does this because they're not saying, oh, Ole Miss has got a lot of nice guys and that's a problem. That's not really my point. But my point is that, you know, you, you need a little bit of fire. You need a little Christian Sharon out there at times. And I think Delucia is somebody who can give you that. Um, I, I think that could easily play if he if he does kind of what you're talking about. Um, so, no, I, he's another guy. I, did, I didn't write his name down because I wrote down like six, seven different guys. But really it's eight. I mean, Ole Miss is eight deep on guys that could get starting rotation spots right now. And how many of them are good, I guess, kind of determines the ceiling. And I don't know. Guess. Beats me. The trophy thing's fascinating. Can you get him back? Because his 2020 season, he allowed one earned run in like – or one run. I don't think he allowed an earned run in like eight and a half innings or nine innings or something before the season got shut down. And then in 2019, he was starting to figure it out towards the end of the year. And that's an old guy, not necessarily from an experience standpoint, but if you get him back fully healthy by like May, talk about a catalyst to your bullpen by that point because – you know, unless they remain perfectly healthy, you're probably going to be down at least an arm at some point. So, like, mm. that could be a game changer, too. I don't know what yeah. to make of it. I figured Brandon Johnson's the closer, but who the hell knows? Yeah, that's my guess. And I think Dorn is the swing guy. They just can't figure out what to do with him because he can close. He can be the long-term, you know, the, the long-distance reliever. He can start. He can be a, a safety valve if you need to start him and then throw him in the bullpen. He's got a pretty good rubber arm. There's a lot of options there. And then in that Kimbrel Mallets category, it was at least – I should have also mentioned Wes Burton because you've got somebody who's, you know, he's 6'8", so you're expecting these huge velocity numbers. And he's had that at times, but he's probably going to be in that 90, 91 range. But – and this is not to be like an analytics junkie because he's got to throw strikes. Last year he didn't throw enough strikes. I mean, bottom line, the spiral for Mike was that state game they blew when they had Mallets throwing and all that stuff last year. But he put Mallets in for a reason, right? Wrong, and this is not a this is not a justification because it didn't work. But he put him in because he throws strikes. Now he got hit, but he throws strikes. 
you know, Wes has got to throw more strikes. But if you do, 90 with 6-8 with the reach and getting into analytics, that that plays 93-94. I mean, there's an uptick on velocity when you're that big with his level of reach and some of the some of the analytical things that he has. Um, so they're, they're those kind of maybes. It's guys you're just putting an asterisk next to, sort of see how it goes, see what you get. You know, I can draw up something that's really good and really manageable given the offense and putting the entire team together. And then I can draw up some things where this didn't work and this didn't work and this guy didn't have swing and miss and this is what it is. And you go, oh, God, how are they getting outs in this league? Um, it's somewhere in the middle. And, I mean, it, it's going to dictate this season because the offense keeps their floor pretty high. But the pitching staff gets to dictate where on that on, on that scale they end up being. And you can do different things with the bullpen throughout the year. I think last year kind of you had the set roles because it was Tabor Broadway and then find two guys to get it to Broadway. And it ended up being Doherty and Brandon Johnson. But you can have a Doherty do different things throughout the course of a year. Like kind of having more options sometimes leads to more variety and what guys are asked to do to where like last year it was so set that like, God, can you just get the game to the eighth inning and then have six outs for Broadway until his arm falls off? Like, I don't think it'll be as set in stone this year. And that may not actually end up being a bad thing because the, the way as great as Broadway was last year, that was not an optimal situation for him to be in. He, he like he, he performed admirably and it was unreal watching him do stuff some nights, but like that wasn't an optimal situation for him or the pitching staff either. It was just the reality at that point. One more thing. I'm just trying to figure it out. I, Mike is, or the guys who have performed well in inner squads, Matt Parento, the the junior, the um, the Jigo kid from Parkland College. Uh, uh, Mitch Morrell has pitched better this year. They're kind of like one inning stoppers. I don't think there's a lot of depth there as far as going long in games, but they can kind of give them an inning. And that's the guy that Mike's got to figure out where do I get those sample sizes and give them opportunities in the mix of all this other stuff. Because I mean, we just said like 12, 13 names that all need some level of innings. And how the hell you do that will be will, will be interesting over the first four or five weeks of uh, of the season. But you know, look, I think baseline projections. I mean, this this team feels barring because of that schedule too. It feels like eighteen and twelve is sort of the baseline for this thing, where it goes one way or the other based off that number. I was going to go a step further and say, I mean, nineteen eleven is for whatever reason is such a harder mark to get to in eighteen and twelve. Like when you see it play out on a yearly basis, but like that's what this team feels like. And like anything below that kind of one, two win threshold between 18 and 19 feels like this thing did not go. Because good. you get in the same situation. If you go 17 and 13, you're going to host, but you're going to be on the road the next weekend, barring an upset. Which is what they need to change. Cause they haven't had home supers and, you know, I mean, they would have played one in 18, like you mentioned, but you hadn't had those consistently enough. Who's the biggest danger in the West state, right? Yeah, I think so. But even from like an unbiased objective perspective, knowing what you know about each offense and pitching staff, the next answer could be Ole Miss. I think it's Ole Miss or State. Arkansas, Arkansas without Paulette is a different team. Now they got plenty right. of options, but it's a different team. Right. I think it's State. I'd like to see Landon Sims on Friday first. I think it's going to be awesome, but he's never started. Mm-hmm. LSU has got to really, really hit. Yes, they do. They're sitting at eight. They're a good program. They're obviously a hell of a team, but they've got a hit. We'll and see. they got probably the SEC Player of the Year and Jacob Berry to add to the middle of that order, which is you know, – that's a hell of a tandem between he and Cruz. But I agree. I think they've got to really hit. And then everything else just kind of has question marks. Like, And you're only talking about three teams 
eight, or four teams, excuse me, including Ole Miss, because A&M, Auburn, Alabama, one of them could be better than you think, but you're not talking about like a serious threat in the West. Mm-hmm. No, I think so. So, uh, any final thoughts? Anything we missed? I don't think we missed anything. Uh, I'm looking forward to the first bad midweek loss and what that looks like in terms of uh, if Mike should keep his job into March or into April, whenever that does come. You, you, you joke, Tuesday starter feels very key for this team because I don't want to get – it's where you're going to get some other guys some at-bats. You're not always going to play your main lineup on Tuesdays. And I've changed my line of thinking here a little bit, and I'll admit this. In the past, I've gone, hey, just go 19-7 and seven or better in those non-con games. You're going to host. But given their problems, as you just mentioned, to really needing to be a top eight, not a top 16 – it feels like they need to find a way to go 22-4 and four in that non-league. You need to put a couple more there. You need to kind of just, just build the wins up everywhere you can. And you're going to hit enough to outscore a lot of teams on Tuesday. But having a very reliable presence on that Tuesday from a mound standpoint feels, feels pretty relevant. You, know, you wonder if that's where you try early in the year, you know, Drew McDaniel gets the chance to go there and then try to elevate. You know, do you put a Hunter Elliott there and just see what she's got as a freshman? There's some options there, but that – that Tuesday starter feels sneaky critical as they as, as they get into the season. So we'll see. Anyway, uh, Ole Miss Charleston Southern four o'clock on Friday is the uh, is the season opener. We'll have coverage from uh, that. Mark McMillan back in town with his Buccaneers for the weekend for uh, for that one, and then starting in earnest a fifty six game schedule for the uh, the Rebels. So podcast coming to you all week long brian you've got uh you're working on a couple feature stories you've got podcast as well your next podcast uh monday or tuesday we're gonna go monday but uh mr socialite bracken ray is hosting a super bowl party so we're gonna go uh we're gonna go on monday and then colin and i'll be back in our normal kind of baseball routine on probably most midweeks and then sunday nights monday whatever uh so that'll get kick-started this week too looking forward to it Okay, so hope everybody has a uh, a wonderful day. Enjoy uh, whatever's coming up. This probably doesn't get up. You won't listen for the Super Bowl, so hope you have a wonderful, safe Super Bowl party, and we'll talk to you again soon.